Let's face it, for most of our kids, school really sucks. Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. The question we should ask ourselves as dads and parents alike is why? Why does it suck? Does it have to suck? And what can we do about it? When it comes to the school experience for kids, the parts that suck haven't changed much. And what has changed has generally made things worse. Students are taking between 10 and 20 standardized tests depending on the grade, a total average of 113 different ones by graduation. It's high pressure, low reward, and completely uncreative. On top of all that, school can be an unhealthy social environment that burns kids out, promotes mindless conformity, and punishes outside-the-box thinking. And that's in our so-called best traditional schools. At the other extreme, poor-performing schools, even when they're well-funded, are often unsafe places that fail to instill the most basic academic skills in their students. In this school, security guards watch for razor blades and tinfoil, knives, it has been reported that up to 85% of incarcerated youth are functionally illiterate. It's called the school-to-prison pipeline, and it's a national trend where children are funneled out of public schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice system. The results speak for themselves. Students, parents, and even many teachers agree that our K-12 system is a mess, and that's before COVID threw the whole thing into complete chaos. I definitely feel very stressed. I probably get around like four to five hours of sleep. I've never felt so much stress in one school year. My guest today, Michael Yates, is determined to change the way we think about the classroom. Mike knows the system inside and out. I think I know why today so many people, especially today's students, hate school. He was raised by a teacher and has spent years distilling his outside-the-box approach in both public and private schools alike. I am the provocateur. I am the imaginer. I show up with wild, crazy ideas. He was instrumental in developing the innovative Alpha School here in Austin, Texas, which boldly promises that kids will love school, learn twice as fast, and learn real-world skills in the process. That's no small task. He's also a leader in Teach for America's Reinvention Lab, the very place he got rejected from early in his career for radical ideas on how to make classrooms work better for students. I thought that teachers should not speak for more than seven minutes, because if I'm talking, the student's not talking. Lay out, like, what is it that you do? <laughs> what is your job right now? Because it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, so my job title is I'm the Senior Managing Director of Network Strategy at what's called the Reinvention Lab. Um, the Reinvention Lab is a small, like, startup-esque group inside of a large nonprofit, Teach for America, and Teach for America trains teachers and puts them in low-income schools. Well, we exist to change the way the organization works because of an ineffective, like, inefficiencies in the model. Yeah. Um, and so I, I am the provocateur, I am the, the imaginer, I show up with wild, crazy ideas and execute on those ideas to make people think differently about learning and education and what it should be. What is TFA, what is that? Yes, TFA is Teach for America. About 30 years ago, um, it, it was an attempted solution to a problem, which was this massive teacher shortage that we're still experiencing today in the US. You couldn't find enough quality teachers to fill positions particularly in low-income schools, low-income neighborhoods and low-income schools. So the idea was that you'd find a college student who's really talented and really good at school. When they graduate, you train them, you put them in the classroom, 
they stay there for two years and then they go somewhere else and advocate for education, whether it's in the legal sphere or entertainment or wherever. Are these people who are studying education or are they people who are studying a, a subject matter like, you know, math and physics or history or law or economics? Who, who are these students that TFA is or was originally reaching out to, right. to to enter the classroom? It's certainly not just for education majors. As a matter of fact, TFA is considered sort of like an alternative certification program for a lot of folks. So like if you're not majoring in education, it's a way into the field if you want to become a teacher. So. How does TFA find me? Like, how does that happen? Oh, they, they, they recruit. They show up. They, 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 they pop up on the college campus. And, and today, there's even more sort of more creative ways to recruit, like, like you know, standing up a tutoring program where you get uh, college freshmen and sophomores to do the tutoring. And they're like, oh, well, I, you know, I love doing this. And you're like, well, hey, you can be a teacher at that school, too. Uh, so they, I mean, they have an aggressive, like, large recruiting department and effort every year. You said that you were brought in because there was a feeling that actually not only was it not necessarily working as well as it could, but that right. you said, I think you said harm was even being done. Yeah, yeah. So what does that mean? Like, how could an organization that's trying to bring the best and brightest into school districts like Newark, mm -hmm. how could you do harm? Like, that's, yeah. that's kind of crazy. Like, I would right. think that that's an all upside proposition. Yeah, so in some communities, TFA works better than others. For example, in Austin, Texas, you say Teach for America out loud and people will feel like, get out of the room. Really? Yeah, because for whatever reason, it didn't respond well to TFA. But if you go to Houston and you say Teach for America, they say, please give us more. Because in Houston and in Miami, Teach for America saved the public schools. Like the, the influx of talent and the influx of people who just wanted to be there, even if it was two years or five years, like it transformed the schools in some of those neighborhoods. Where does the Innovation Lab come in? Where does Mike Yates right. come in to start yeah. cracking skulls at TFA? <laughs> you, you partially said it. It's like, like one size doesn't fit all. It's like TFA will say that and then they create this standardized form, formalized system to becoming a teacher. TFA decided we have a profile and we know who's gonna be a great teacher. Well, I'll tell you, I, I was rejected from Teach for America. I applied to Teach for America. I had taught in a private school, and I had a, a blast. I was a basketball coach, I was a speech coach, I taught speech. I was there from 4 a.m. to like 11 p.m. every day because I just loved it. I loved being with students. And I said, you know what, this is the career I wanted, I want to pursue. Yeah. I didn't care that I got paid pennies on the dollar. As a matter of fact, I was being paid so little at the school that going to public school was like, a $10,000 increase, like, that's just, keep that in perspective. So, so I applied to Teach for America, and by that time I had, I had what most people would consider, especially seven years ago, very radical beliefs about school. Like I thought that teachers should not speak for more than seven minutes, because if, if, if I'm talking, who's not? The student's not talking. And so I, I designed my sample teach at my interview where I only spoke three words. And, and they were piecing together this experience and it looked like they were having fun. It looked like it was engaging and interactive. But then my interview was stopped short. And my interviewer said, there's somewhere for you in education, but it's not here. I wanna make sure I understand this. You're in, in your interview and they're like, get out. <laughs> yeah, and what, add insult to injury, I was supposed to interview in Dallas. So I drove, you know, three and a half hours. It snows in Dallas, they cancel the interview. So I look at my wife, said, well, they said I could go to San Antonio. So we drove on the ice and snow to get out of Dallas in the middle of the night 
so that we could be at this interview in San Antonio. And then I was kicked out of the interview. <laughs> great experience. Right. Great. So I just remember I went out on the river walk and I put my hands in my pocket and I said, I've got to be right. That went well. <laughs> and maybe I was delusional, but I was convinced at that point that like I knew something that they, they just couldn't see. And that's, that's a good example of like the harm that TFA did because I wanted nothing to do with that organization. I spoke out against them publicly every chance that somebody asked me. At one point, it was you could describe it as a visceral hatred for, for TFA and organizations like it, um, because I I started to peel back the layers of like what had happened in that interview, and what it was was it was the institution, in part funded by the government, telling somebody who's doing something different, that's arguably better for for kids, that you don't belong here. And so when TFA is deciding who does and does not belong, it's where they did a lot of harm in a lot of communities. And there are, there are a lot of adults today that are like, we don't want to talk to them. I think about the challenge of doing, doing things at certain scales right. when I hear what you're describing. Is that avoidable? Or is it like you can't deliver school at scale, teachers at scale, right. and not have a certain amount of like bureaucratic, like yeah. well, like bell curve stuff. Where mm -hmm. well, like you know, we get most of the good stuff, and then there's all these wacky people like Mike Yates who come in, and I don't know what to do with him. So get lost. In the defense of Teach for America, they've got to answer for the dollars that they spend. And so if they're like, yeah, this dude says that you software can replace direct instruction, they got to go tell somebody like, yeah, we 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 put this guy through. But I think it is that like it's the standardization of process and like how do we churn out great teachers at scale because I, I don't know that anybody would say that this in these words but they had no option but to build for scale because that was the problem that the organization chose to tackle let's talk about that education radicalism that got you kicked out of your interview where does this education journey start for you like and maybe go back to even as a kid what was school like for you so my mom was a teacher, and when I was eight years old, um, I, I, I came home one day, and my mom had these, these like brochures lining the table of universities. And she was like, you just need, you need to pick one. And I was like, why? Eighth grade? No, when I was eight years old. Eight years old? Yeah. <laughs> She's like, you need to pick one of these, because you're going to go to one of these schools. And so I was, I was like, all right. So I picked Duke. I had no idea what it meant. And, and my mom goes, yeah, they have a good basketball team. And I was like, oh, great. I like basketball. This is good. <laughs> and so I was a Duke basketball fan and didn't really know why my whole childhood. But that, that story, I, I, I always go back to it because my mom did not always know the right answers. But there was this thing inside of her where she knew that education was the key to unlocking whatever our situation was. Because as a single mom, well, like, I didn't grow up with a father. I had one parent who was taking care of three young, crazy boys. And, and now that I have my own children, I often call my mom and I'm like, I'm sorry that we ate so much and that we broke stuff. Like, three boys I, is basically like three monsters. Exactly. That yeah, you've invited into your home. Like, oh, I just, and I, I have so much gratitude for her and respect for my mom now that I'm raising my own children, and she did it all by herself. But 
she knew that education, there was something special about education. She also knew that there was something special about doing it differently. But she had this friend named Miss um, Beam, and Miss Beam was this crazy science teacher. But I loved this teacher. I loved her. Every day at lunch, she would put this, like, this skinned, dead cow head in an ice chest in the hallway because she thought it was so funny to gross students out. <laughs> And she was like, oh, we're going to learn volume, like this volume formula. Wheeled in a fish tank, run a water hose through the window, and starts filling up the fish tank. And she's like, if somebody doesn't figure out how much water can fit in this tank, the room's going to flood. I just, I was like, I don't know if those are effective teacher like teaching techniques. They probably aren't. But <laughs> I was hooked to come to that class every day just because I was like, what is this crazy lady going to do? What kind of Houdini nonsense is going to arrive? Exactly. <laughs> I see that as my earliest training ground because it was, at the time, I never said this out loud, but being a teacher to me at that moment was enormous. It, was, it meant something to me because all of my mom's friends who were teachers like, I, I swear to this day, she doesn't admit to this, but I don't think, I just think if a person was a bad teacher, she just didn't talk to them. Like, all the teachers I hated, my mom also hated them. <laughs> and, <laughs> and all the teachers that I thought were really awesome, it just happened to be they were really good friends with my mom. And, and so I just had this roster of incredible teachers at, at this school. And um, our school was, middle school was also, it was a very tough environment because in Houston, you have these massive zones where every school really is a melting pot, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses. I went to middle school with Josh Gordon, who is an NFL wide receiver who has had lots of trouble with, with drugs. And our middle school game plan was real simple in football. And so we all looked like we were better than it was give Josh the ball. <laughs> and those guys, I mean, Josh and, and, and some of the other elite athletes, I, I watched them flock to my mom's classroom. They, I, you know, in the hallway, like, oh, your mom's so awesome. She's so funny. She does this. I like, I, 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 was, I was supposed to fail this test. She let me retake it. Just like all of these little things that I was sort of learning um, and just taking with me. Beyond her, though, I had, particularly when I got to high school, I had almost given up on school. I was just like, this just doesn't work for me. I hate it. Like, I'm probably going to go to college because I had to pick the, the brochure. And I was like, I hope it's going to be Duke. Like, I was a big J.J. Redick fan at the time, the, the, the shooting guard at Duke. And um, my sophomore year, I, I walked into a homeroom class, and uh, a teacher named Heath Martin, who changed my life, because he was the first teacher outside of my mom that was able to, like, not, not just, like, believe in me, but, like, saw things about me that, like, I could not have seen or, or like I couldn't have developed. I was convinced, like I said, it was like, I'm going to get a scholarship to play basketball at Duke. I was 5'9 in the ninth <laughs> grade. That was not happening. But he was the first person to look at me and say, That's, that ship has sailed for you. He's <laughs> like, if you were going to go to Duke, we would have known that two years ago. <laughs> like, you would have known. He's like, but what you are is an exceptional communicator. He was like, what you are is a passionate person. And he was like, so you will be, he told me this in those words, he was like, you will be one of the greatest teachers on planet Earth because you have the skill set. And I was like, dude, I'm not going to teach. <laughs> I hate school. <laughs> and he was like, that's fine. For the time being, you're going to be on the speech team. He's like, I'll see you at practice. And I was like, this is like speech for nerds. <laughs> and I ended up showing, I don't know why I came, but I showed up 
on, on, a, on a Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. I showed up after school. And just like the mentorship, I'll say this, the, the things that, make, I, that I think make teachers great are all the things that happen outside of the classroom, outside of the instruction and the techniques and stuff like that. We were at a speech tournament once. One of my teammates got disqualified for a reason that he shouldn't got disqualified for. We couldn't find our coach, Mr. Martin, th this teacher, and uh, we see students running out of this cafeteria. Like just, you know, we're like, oh, somebody fighting? And they're rushing to the window of this library where Heath Martin is standing on a table yelling at the other adults, telling them like, you know this is wrong. He's like, but that's fine because we're gonna pull out of this tournament and we'll see y'all at nationals. And storms out, sees every, he's like, move, let's go. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, we'll see y'all at nationals. You know, it was, just, it was like one of the, like it was a television movie moment, but I will never for the rest of my life forget that and how I felt like, even though he wasn't on the table specifically for me, I was like, that guy has my back. You know, it was when I wanted to drop out of the, the race for student class, for student body president, he literally slammed his fist on the table and was like, no, you're gonna write a speech, you're gonna deliver the speech. And the other, you know, faculty sponsor was like, well, he can judge. He's like, you don't know him. Stop. <laughs> right? Like, I gave the speech, I won. I was class president. Like, I owe a lot of my success and mindset to that guy because he chose to go the extra mile, do the extra work, you know? So The thing that I always like to keep in, in mind when we get into conversations about what's wrong with education hmm. is that p people like that shape our lives. That's right. Right? And I think the thing that complicates our, our, our discourse is Mr. Martin is a great teacher. Right. But he, he's a great person. Right, exactly. You know, and I think there's this desire that we can't, like we have to put teachers on a pedestal for the simple fact of doing that job. I think every job has people that are great at it and people that aren't. Right. And when we sort of venerate a job instead of venerating individuals like Heath, I think that gets things confused. Tell me more about him. Yeah, if you put together all the identity markers, you, you would never guess that this would be the guy that influenced my life. <laughs> so Mr. Martin was a middle-aged gay white male who he says he was born Catholic, he's gonna die Catholic. He's from Louisiana. Just kind of like, like, honestly, he's, He's kind of like this ornery figure. Like he's like, sometimes you, you get the sense that he's always bothered by something and you don't know what it is. He's not really bothered by anything. It's just his demeanor. He just cared deeply for every single human being. And he, he, he used to say this to me. He used to say, I don't hold any part of my identity too close because if I hold one part too close, I miss the fact that I'm a whole amalgamation of, of, of people. I learned from him about cultures that I had never considered I remember in high school, he fought for two things, to form a black student alliance, and he fought for a, a Holocaust studies course. And um, one of the things he challenged us on, he was like, okay, if we, if we pull this black student alliance thing off, I dare you to go learn about somebody else's culture. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take that. I'll take that bet. At that point in my life, I had had so many positive interactions with him that I trusted that whatever, like whatever he was challenging me to do, it's like, well, there's probably gonna be something cool on the other end. And that small interaction, whether right or wrong or effective or ineffective, 
the in-between is what matters. The in-between of him building trust for years and sticking close and fighting for kids, is it really describes who he was. It was one of the few classes I remember from school. It was my video tech class and that one, <laughs> you know, so. So you obviously, in Mr. Martin, you have like a model of like how a teacher can change your life, right? right? Where does that take you next in this road to being someone that's devoting your life you know, yeah. to education and to different, I mean, you know, you've got a podcast called School Sucks. Yeah. You have a TED Talk called yeah. School Sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So unwrap the, the, the seeming contradictions there yeah. for someone who sees that stuff and just like, you know, they see like, Mike, like, yeah, school sucks. That's why I love school. Right. You know, like, yeah. wait, what? Yeah. Um, I think there's two things that happen. So the inverse is also true about Mr. Martin. If he, if he represents sort of, um, if he's the prototype for a great teacher, then there's Miss McGowan. I hated her. Like, she was. Is she still alive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've had a great revenge story with her. Miss um, McGowan was my seventh grade English teacher. And I had gone to this writing camp at Rice University. And I had an instructor there who said to me, he said, you are a phenomenal writer. And I didn't know much about the world or anything, but I knew that people felt really good about Rice. And if a student from Rice who was getting his PhD is telling me that I'm a good writer, then I, 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 that meant something to me. Yeah. And it made me take writing a little more seriously. And to this day, I still, I love writing. I had written this paper um, in, in Ms. McGowan's class. I took it, I used a lot of techniques that I learned from this camp. And when it was time to return the papers, you know, I mean, you know, you know what it means if a teacher gives you a folded, if she folds it with her hand, like, <laughs> It's like, uh-oh. Yeah, like, you, oh. And she folded the, and it had nothing on it. And I went to her after class, I was like, hey, I don't have a grade. And she says, oh, yeah, that's, we, we need to talk about this. And she accused me of plagiarism. And I, I remember, I've read the words, I was hot with anger, and I never knew what that meant until that moment. Like, I, I, I yeah. was boiling over. I was, I was ready to, like, kick a desk over because I worked so hard on that, and, I, like, I knew it was my work. Fortunately, uh, education technology had come along at that point, and there was, there was Turnitin.com. I calmed down, and I said, you know what? Let's use Turnitin.com. And she, she said, oh, yeah, okay, let's do it. <laughs> Did she give you attitude? Like, yeah. oh, <laughs> you just hung yourself, son. Exactly. <laughs> That's it. You're done. You're toast. We ran through Turnitin.com, and this is what, what soured school for me. The originality report came back and it confirmed that I wrote the paper. And she said, the technology's gotta be too new. In my professional opinion, you did not write this paper. A seventh grader cannot write like this. In that little sentence, it said to me immediately, oh, Mike, it's not that she recognized the words. She just thinks you're too stupid to have written this. I went to my mom, I said, hey, this is what's happening. You know that I wrote this paper. You saw me writing this paper. We only have one computer in this house. How would I have typed this? How would I have done this anywhere else? There's no way that I could have. And, and my mom said, yeah, and you have a choice. You can fight or you can just take the, take the zero. What do you want to do? And I hated that because I was like, I, I just want you to go fix it. Right, well, this is some good, this is some good parenting it's, right it was, This is like parenting lesson numero uno. It was the best parenting. Because I said, okay, you know, I said, well, what are my options? And she was like, well, you've already talked to her twice. 
you done turning out a comm. She's like, now you have to go above her. So I was like, well, who's above her? She's like, well, go to the principal. I was like, all right. And she's, my mom said, most important line, she said, don't tell them I told you to go. And I didn't know why she said that until I was much older. Because if I would have walked in there, my mom told me to come in here. When the principal failed me as a student, because he said, we're going to side with the professional opinion of our staff member. That was when the system became tainted to me. That was when I was like, oh, there's a whole little process where they protect each other. And the only thing that restored my faith in the profession was that my mom then said, give me the paper, go sit in the car. And she just unloaded on Miss McGowan. And one of the greatest professional moments of my career was going back to Houston, giving a, a training on student engagement and telling that story with her sitting in the front row. That is, that is an epic. Yeah. What's most interesting about that story um, is that, and, and this, is, this is also sort of goes back to the question you asked me about sort of like the paradox of me like hating school, but also loving, loving the profession is, you know, with all the cancel culture and everything, I, I remember thinking to myself, do you want her to be fired? And my honest answer was no, I don't. But I want her to live with that moment every day of her professional career so that she doesn't do it again. I'm gonna transition us because you, yeah. in a very real sense, want to cancel a traditional school. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about what you've done to see that come come about. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is not like at the political level, but I right. mean yeah. you developed a program as part of being at a school that is quite radical. So that was a chance for you to sort of express what you think it means to teach and learn and mm -hmm. what, what those things are. How did you get into a, that, you know, at Alpha? And yeah. what did you do and, 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 and why were you doing it? Yeah, it was, it was a singular moment for me. My second year of teaching, I was in Fort Worth ISD, which is one of the worst public school districts in the state of Texas. Uh, the average reading level of a high school junior in Fort Worth is third grade. Wow. Like, it's, it's really bad. And, and to digress for a minute on that, how do you, how does that happen? It's a total system failure. Like, how do, yeah, how does a, how does a kid stay at a third grade reading level and be allowed to continue to high school? Part of it was public policy. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's part of what No Child Left Behind did and the application of it. I mean, you go talk to enough kids who are in public school, they'll tell you, like, if you fail the class, just go do the packet in the summer and they'll, they'll pass you. You also have teachers who are met with impossible situations. Now, now there's something called inclusion classes in um, public schools. Inclusion classes are normally reserved for first-year teachers because veteran teachers there's no way that they would teach an inclusion class because that's basically where they dump every child that has a emotional disturbance or behavior issue or individual learning plan. Like, so if they're learning disabilities and differences, like that's where they are. So here's all the kids that are kind of inside the bell curve and all you, you know, misfit toys can all be together. In one class. Where actually the div divergences between you are actually probably even further. It's educational malpractice is what it is. And, and it's, it, sh it should be illegal. I was teaching that in Fort Worth. And I had every behavior problem in the school. The American teaching force is 80% white, middle-aged women. And so when you have trouble, particularly with black boys, you find the first coach that you, and you send them to the coach. <laughs> And so, so I just had kids, just people just sending kids to me, 
Um, but I had students, I, I just decided, I was like, you know what I, you know what I can do? I can create an environment that kids love. There were days where I was like, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna watch the Golden State Warriors. Cause they, they would come in there and they're like, we're tired, we don't wanna do this work. And I'm like, I don't want, I'm, I'm not fighting with you. <laughs> So let's watch the Warriors. I, I had the great fortune of, and I knew this because I had a mother who's a teacher. I knew advice to anybody going into teaching, do not teach a tested subject ever because it's just not the same pressure. Nobody was coming to look at, look at me for standardized test scores. So I had so much flexibility. I had a kid who couldn't read in the sixth grade. He lived in a house with no running water. He had watched his father murder his mother. He, oh. This was one of the hardest situations I've ever heard about. I, I loved having this kid in my class. What was his name? His name is Angel. And like me, Angel knew one thing about the world and that was that education could lift him out of whatever, that situation. He, that, he, he loved being at school. And so he came to my class and he said, hey, like, as you really know, like, you probably shouldn't call on me to read out loud because I'm not really good at that. I talked to him after class and said, look, man, I've never taught anybody how to read but you're not leaving this class not knowing how to read. And so everything that we're doing, you're not doing that anymore. And he was like, what am I gonna do? And I was like, I need to go home and Google it. And I literally, <laughs> I went home that night and I Googled, how do you teach kids how to read? The first thing I found, I found. <laughs> Can I just stop you for a second? Because I think one of the things that uh, is so great about that is it's like here, it's just, I was a trained and degree teacher. Yes! <laughs> you know, your mom is like a world-class public school teacher, and you're like, okay, I got, and I got these problem kids. Yeah. I better Google how to teach kids how to read. Yeah. Now, okay, so what did Google tell you? I, I said, okay, well, apps that teach kids how to read. I found this app called Newzella. Back then, it's not what it is today. Props to Newzella for what they've done. But it was basically articles on everything and they adjusted it based on what, K through 12 reading levels. And so the next day I showed up and I said, hey, Angel, I have no idea if this is gonna work, but you're gonna read these articles or try to read them and do whatever the activities they have in this, in this program on this computer while we do this other stuff. And, and he's like, okay, cool. I was like, so what do you like? What do you like? He was like, I love soccer. I was like, cool. He's like, who, who, who's your favorite soccer player? He's like, Cristiano Ronaldo. It's like, great. So we pulled up seven articles about it, and he just starts going through it and doing the little exercises. And oh, I know. <laughs> this is one of the, this is the greatest. I'm going to have to hold it back because I'm a blubbery Italian and I'm prone to tears. <laughs> Wait till you hear I mean, this is the greatest moment in my teaching career. Three months go by. And I'm, I kid you not, I am not, I was just not checking on him. <laughs> like I did not. <laughs> I Googled it, yeah. I got some crazy article thing, kid likes soccer, yeah. all right, I'm out. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. <laughs> and, and I would ask him, I was like, hey, like, you feel like you're getting better? He's like, yeah, no, this is cool, this is good. And I'm like, all right, cool, well, let's keep it going. <laughs> About three months goes by and he just screams. He's like, yes. And they all know what's going on. Like they, they know and they were, Credit to those kids, they were so supportive of him. And um, I'm like, Angel, what happened? And he's like, he stands up, he's like, I just read this article seven times and I didn't mess up once. And then he starts reading it out loud and the kids are cheering and my, like, I'm like, he could read. Like he, it was three months of him every day and he was reading. That day was the day that I, it was cemented for me that I didn't need to be talking 
to teach kids. Because he said, you taught me how to read. And I was like, hey man, I don't know if you like, I was not talking to you ever. <laughs> and I had this wonderful student named Yvette who like took nothing from anyone. She's, she's gonna, she's going to transform the way that politics are done in the United States because she's no nonsense. And she don't care what line you sit, she's like, what aisle you sit on, she's calling you out. And she was very clearly like, yeah, he didn't teach you how to read. He just, he just gave you the right tool. You just need to recognize that. <laughs> and she was trying to be funny. <laughs> but in my heart, I was like, dang, that's, that's true. That's right. That's like, she just gave me all of the teacher education I needed. And I, I, it was just in my brain in that moment, my whole class shifted. Where I was like, it's not, it, it's, it's where I found videos like I've come to realize that you were making <laughs> on YouTube. I realized that, that there were tools around me that nobody told me existed that were better and faster and able to individualize learning for these students who had highly individualized needs that I couldn't meet by myself. And I had two assistant teachers. Right? And so I told them, it's like the three of us are not enough for these 25 kids at a time. And we, we, the classroom changed from that to stations. You know, we called them learning pods. So it was, it, was, it was just these small groups of students who were interested in the same sort of segment or same sort of thing. And we started building what, I didn't know at the time, but it was like a mini version of Alpha. What was shocking to me is how much more content we got through um, when you sort of flatten out the stair step that they give you in the curriculum guides, which is like, do this first, then do this step, then do that one. And you let kids go at their own pace. Also, when I wasn't spending time talking, it was more time for them to practice and to learn. And, and I was using lots of Google searches. <laughs> Um, we launched this assault on our, on our English department um, about Wikipedia because they learned to use Wikipedia. They learned, learned to use the sublinks on Wikipedia. And you had students that were just, I was, they were just figuring things out at a pace that was faster than what a traditional classroom would allow. Like one of the, the most interesting epiphanies is, is Ken Derek White, who was always in trouble with everybody. And he was like, yeah, some people say, Wikipedia is not real, real, real research because you can change it. He's like, but I gotta be real. I don't know anybody who would take the time to go change anything on Wikipedia. I was like, that's actually a fantastic point. Like, <laughs> who's taking the time to change things to make them? But you know, we we then like deep dove on Wikipedia and found out that it used to be Newpedia and they were peer-reviewed articles, but they could couldn't churn out enough of them. And they were just armed and ready. So when their English teacher said, you can't use Wikipedia, they said, well, here's what we found out. <laughs> you know, and I just loved that they, they, were, they were soaking up so much knowledge that it turned them into these, like, these, these, these rebels in the school, which they kind of already were. But now they were equipped with like real knowledge and they were impressing people. And all of a sudden, the district superintendent and these district officials started showing up and taking notes on the class because what was happening there was truly special. And for me, that was it. That was the school year that I was supposed to be at Teach for America, where I was rejected, and I had to go through another program. And that moment where I was on the Riverwalk saying to myself, I'm right. I was back there, stand, standing in the middle of this classroom with the desk literally turned upside down and students doing all kinds, like laying on the floor. And I remember looking at it and I remember thinking about the Riverwalk. And I, I said it out loud this time. I was like, I'm right. I'm right, I know I'm right. And the rest of my education career was spent, has been spent 
trying to do school radically different because I saw firsthand what it did for the kids that no one wanted. So break down for me the pieces yeah. as you understand them now mm -hmm. about why that worked. I mean, because I think we can go into what became, you know, some of the things you did at, at Alpha here. Yeah. But I think even more important than that for a parent, for a dad mm -hmm. who's watching and listening yeah. to our conversation is not like, well, what, what about this school? Because they, you know, unless you're in Austin, Texas, you're not going to right. Alpha probably um, yet. But, um, yeah, that's a good point. but, uh, what were the pieces? So, and here's what I'm hearing, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna necessarily bring my own mentality into something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is, well, one is Angel. Part of what seems to me like worked about that reading app that you gave him was he was getting to engage material he actually like he actually cared about. Yep. So instead of like, we're all gonna read this boring textbook because it's like by definition, it's a textbook so it sucks and it's yeah. boring and it's terrible and it's like, let's talk about war and make it seem boring. Right. So that's one piece, right? Follow your passions, follow your interests. You mm. learn what you're interested in. What other sort of pillars? Yeah. Like, first of all, do you agree with that? And like, mm -hmm. what other pillars have emerged for you as, as like the building blocks? Yeah, the major lesson with, with Angel there's two was one of them was about him following his passion and the other one was that I never actually had to motivate him to do it I believe that he was motivated by like wanting to like he he knew reading was a gateway to a, a better situation for him but I, I think that the motivation for him became the passion it was just like I just love this I, I already love it and I get to do it in school so and I think that that was the other thing it was so different to them this was only one hour of their day where they got to, they felt like they got to relax and they got to be themselves. And the, literally talking was one of, is, is one of the points, like their voice being heard. So I, I started, I had always had these uh, classroom procedures that other teachers hated. I, they made us write them on the wall. And so my first procedure was infinite retakes on any test. My second was no test <laughs> and they hated it because I was hell-bent on finding a different way to show knowledge. And when we sort of switched to this model, it was even more imperative that I found a different way because everybody was doing something different at that point. So I couldn't just give them a test or a, qu or a quiz or anything. And so I, I had to find a different way to assess their knowledge. So we used lots of presentations. Um, we used a lot of debate. We used a lot of like creative projects. So it was like, I would go to the computer lab and I would rent computers and I'd rent these old uh, like iPads that they had. And we'd use the iPads for like filmmaking. Like we were trying to make rap videos. They loved flocabulary, which was this, this uh, it turns history into rap. That sounds awesome. <laughs> and they were like, okay. So we used to use flocabulary. They're like, well, we should make flocabulary now. And I was like, brilliant idea. So that's that's the other the uh, the other pillar to speak is is really like listening to the voices of students as the experts on education and their experience. Like they'll tell you what they want to do. One way you could interpret this is say, oh no, look, this is great. This is the system working. Like this mm -hmm. is a public school, and here's Mike Yates doing this. If there's a little bit of sarcasm in my voice, there, it's because. You're obviously like the .0001% of experiences yeah. kids are having yep. in, in these standardized systems. Mm -hmm. 
when we talk about trying to customize it, the education experience for kids, yeah, we get into this issue of there's a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. So how's that going to work? And how do we know that some of these customizations aren't going to be like a disaster? What is your sense of like the potential to have more kids getting what they need? So I think the most important lesson that I learned, it actually came at the end of the year when I had like all of my students were like, hey, can you come to the next grade with us? And I was like, I can't. And if I do, who's going to teach sixth grade? But I realized in that moment, the saddest thing, which is that they're going to have to go back to regular school next year. And even that year, they had to go back to regular school. You know, the rest of the day. The rest of the day. And for them, the trade-off was worth it. And so I, I couldn't stomach it, and I left the public school system. And I set out to try to build something. I wanted, I wanted to try to build a whole school. And in the process, that's how I got connected with the team at Alpha and, and ended up there. And so I, I think the most direct answer to the question is for a dad who's trying to provide this sort of experience, it is to do something that schools hate, and it's to be really engaged. Like not lording or hovering over your kid, but understanding deeply what happens in the building and how your student can take advantage of it. Involvement is not just showing up to the class presentation. Involvement is, is like when, when a decision doesn't make sense, it's having the conversation. It's, it's yeah, you're going to the top. And even though schools hate this, I encourage it because your child will never, ever get everything they can out of the school if it's not a real partnership. And so I don't mean beat your school over the head, but I mean establish partnership and establish yourself as a, a presence in the school. They should know you and you should know what's, what's going on. You should be able to, at Alpha, there's a, there's a, a parent that, you know, when, when some people saw him coming, they, they, would, they would just they would sigh. And I came to love talking to him. Right or wrong, oh, he would tell you how he felt about what was going on. And he would ask the hard questions. He told us when we were doing a bad job, and when we did a great job, oh, he, would sing, he will sing the praises of people who are doing. I'll never forget, he was standing in a group of parents, he was, and he was like, that guy over there, Mike, he's the greatest public speaking teacher. And he's like, I'm telling you, there's no one better. And I was like, man, I feel so good right now. And I used to roll my eyes when I'd see him coming until I realized that John showing up at the building or John's email made me better. Because I knew that when it came to his kids, I should know where they are at all times. Not, not like physically in the building, but like, if he's like, hey, how are they doing in math? I should, I should know. I should know, you know, how they're doing in math. And then I realized, oh, well, if I would do that for them, I should be doing that for every kid. And so one parent choosing to be involved and say, yes, I want to understand. Yes, I will tell you when I don't think it's right. And yes, I will tell you when you're doing a great job. Those three things for me pushed me to be so much better. In a way that what you just said is sort of at the heart of learning, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, that, it's that confrontation and criticism yeah. is how you come to understand something. It's right. a, is it, uh, you know, John Stuart Mill that said the person that knows only their own position yeah. doesn't even really know that, right. I'm paraphrasing, but that's such an essential thing. Like, mm -hmm. it, you know, you, you want to stretch your brain out past those the routes that are already yeah. ingrained there. The line that I always tell people is from James Baldwin. He said, I love America more than any other country in the world. And it is for that reason that I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually.
That's how I feel about education. Yeah. And that's how I feel every parent should feel about the school. You know, one of the things that I really believe is dangerous mm -hmm. that's being pushed, and that is this notion of being a victim. Right. And that, because I don't know anyone that embraced being a victim and that was their path to achievement. Exactly. Except maybe certain book authors, which I don't know, but that you can kind of see like who monetized victimhood into, mm -hmm. into a kind of like celebrity status. But as, a, as like a mentality, it just seems as a parent and as an educator, like the worst possible choice you can make is to say, you have no agency over your life. You are a victim of a system that is rigged against you, mm -hmm. even if it's true. Right. Right. Like, I believe that institutional racism is real. Like, I, I do. I, I believe that, I believe racism is very real. I believe that there are different starting points for people based on their race. Like, I, I, I believe that there are racist people. Like, I, I, it, it, it's honestly so difficult to know a man's heart. So I take a very nuanced stance on almost everything because I, I, I really try to look at human beings as like, like 360 total like figures. Like, people are flawed and and I really, like, I, I, I'm a Christian, so I believe that no one is righteous. And at the same time, I believe that human beings, there is a mechanism by which we are capable of good. And so I, that's, that's also why I don't subscribe to cancel culture. For me, it's weird because I am so, I'm so in it about the fundamental, like, universality of human dignity. Mm -hmm. Like, that, that, like, you know, it's partly because I believe that we have a soul. It's partly because yeah. the philosophical framework of treating every individual as equal works. Mm -hmm. From what I could see, from everything I've looked at or read, it's like, no, when you treat everybody as an equal human being, that works, that mm -hmm. works. When you start to divide them up along these lines, it's an experiment we've run over and over. We've run it with kids, we've run it with nations. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like the Nazis. It's like, okay, well, these people are bad. Yeah. Just because of their characteristics, just because of what they are, that stuff that is not, stuff that you could tell when you look across a room. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I know what that person's all about. It's like, I don't even know what I'm all about. So how all are right. you across the room gonna tell me what I'm all about? Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned for myself over time is how much I don't know what I'm capable of. Yeah. At any given time. I don't know whether or not I can do a thing I set out to do. Yeah. And so if I don't know whether I can achieve this goal I've set for myself, how could somebody else know that? But like there's so many situations that we just don't apply that same victimhood mentality to. The thing that I hate about it for education is because I look at all these other areas of our life where we don't apply them, it makes me question the motive immediately. And I'm like, who's making y'all rich? The conspiracy theorist in me says that if there is somebody who's trying to win a culture war, they're, do they're doing it in school for a reason. Because every time you wanna do something nefarious, in any culture, you get the young people. What I hear you saying is, you look out there and you see, you know, pull it from the headlines, like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, young elementary school stuff doing Crazy things like having like the kids all line up based on the amount of melanin in their skin, which is such a weird and it's like exercise. It's like is this a snapshot from a David Duke conference? Right. No, it's at, it's at like a Portland middle Portland elementary school or something. Yeah, um, are you saying that you think the person that put that in that school is not well intended? 
They're just wrong. They're just. <laughs> That's how I. I yeah, I th I think they're wrong, but they're not. They're not like twirling their mustache like a right. villain. I struggle to answer the question because I actually do know decision makers in education who genuinely believe that this is the, that's, that that they're doing right by people. The reason why I said they're wrong is because when I have the conversations, I say, no, no, I know you care. I just think you're wrong. I look at what's going on in the media and all of, and how this conversation is a distraction to progress, in, especially in education. This is my number one role I feel like at work is redirecting us from this specific distraction. Teaching victimhood and there's a lot of people that they really don't mean to do it. It's mainstream now. It is, it's where the brownie points come from. If you can quote, Kendi, and if you can quote Robin D'Angelo, you'll get the speaking spot at the conference. Like, I will never get those speaking spots because they know. <laughs> like, my, I don't, they're not gonna call me at those educational equity conferences because they know what I'm coming with and it's the truth, which is like, yeah, it's unfair, but what does that change for you? Either you spend all of your time and all of your effort, all of your money trying to destroy that system, which in turn will destroy you, or you put in the work that it takes. I always go back to my favorite football coach, which is Nick Saban. I'm gonna put this phrase on the wall so my kids can see it when we have this talk. He says to every one of his players, it takes what it takes. And for me, it might be something different than you, but I'm also not concerned with that. Like, <laughs> like I'm not counting your money, I'm not counting your footsteps. Like, cause at the end of the day, like you're doing what you have to do for your family and you're not an ax murderer, as far as I know. Most people aren't. Like, we have places for those people. We're pretty good at finding those people. The, like, the people who truly want to do harm to others, we're pretty good at finding them and, and locking them away. Maybe too good. I have what, we are too good at it. <laughs> but yeah, no, good. agreed. The thing I always tell people, especially when, when we're talking about, when you start talking about oppression, privilege, victimizing people, or accepting victimhood, it's funny because we, we don't extend that to every single area of our life. And I think sports just works nicely, but like whoever's the underdog every week in, in football should just not play the game on Sunday, right? <laughs> like, like, like why would we play the game? Like, I mean, it, my son's basketball team would not play any games right now <laughs> on the basis of. I, I, basketball is a great example. I coached at a private school with some, these kids were not athletic. <laughs> They weren't very good. And we were coaching against, I was, we were playing against another school that had a kid who looked like he was out of a Nike magazine. And then in the eighth grade, this kid's dunking on people. He's got, you know, uh, and then they, you, you look around, there's shooters every, this team was great. They were really good. Um, and I, and I, I rounded my guys up and I said, this is why we play the game. The game hasn't started yet. This is why we play the game. And they, they were, I mean, they were defeated. They were like, look at that. Like, we're not. And I was like, guys, this is no, this is why we play. We beat that team by like 30 that night. What? Because we had it one thing. And we had, a, there's a legendary coach from LBJ High School named Harvey Rhodes. And Harvey Rhodes has a defense that almost nobody can, can beat. And the only way to beat this defense is if you were one of the coaches on his staff. And I know because I was undone by another coach and he was like, oh, you know Harvey Rhodes, huh? <laughs> I was his assistant coach when he put that in. So I was like, so we, I, I was like, hey, we're putting in the defense. After the game, I was like, do you see what that did to you? 
I was like, you played the game. You didn't make yourself a victim. I said that word. I was like, you didn't make yourself a victim of circumstance. And I was nearing a point of like paralyzing depression and fear with the police violence in the country. And I, I said out loud at home, I just, sometimes I feel like it's too much and I don't even know why we live here. And my wife, for some reason, brought up that basketball game. She was like, you remember when you said that? She was like, that's like, kind of. Like, if you just like take your own advice and like maybe don't give up and maybe like play the game, like maybe you'll break through the fear and the anxiety and like how like this person at your job doesn't like you. Like maybe, maybe you should just play the game. <laughs> So your mom is a public school teacher. Yeah. You work for Teach for America. Mm -hmm. And you have four kids that you are homeschooling. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Th this discussion is one that my wife and I have had my whole career. She's been homeschooled from day one. And it, for her, it's about nurture. It's about, hey, these are our kids. And I want to be the one to teach them about how the world works. I want to be the one to show them where, where to find that learning. And uh, like, we're, I'm fortunate in that that's my wife's dream job. Like she's all, she, this is the high level yeah. NCAA division one, not just, not just a division one track athlete, a record holding, like she's got six all time NCAA records at SMU. Right, so I mean, this was a, she's a daughter of an NFL athlete, like she, she has the, the stuff. She's a there. high performance machine, it's, is your wife. Right. And she's only ever wanted to have a family and stay at home and love her kids and teach her kids and, and see them grow in that way. And it got to the point where I was like, I just can't take this from you. Then my wife said, let's not just homeschool, let's build our own program. And as a, as a person who likes to work on education as a problem, that was where I was all in. And I was like, oh yeah, you're right. This she was like, let's clear the table. Yeah. I've got some Lego sets here. Exactly, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what she did. Now do you want to do this? Right. It's like, ooh. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, yeah. Um, in this conversation, you've talked about where you came from as far as your family yeah. and, your, and, your, and your upbringing. Your dad wasn't really around. So, so paint a picture of what yeah. like, your childhood was like. Yeah, I don't have the profile of somebody that you would expect to go off and do anything great. I was raised by a single mother. At one point we were homeless. My mother and, and, and my brother and I, we had nowhere to go. Um, and I, I watched my mom pull us up by her bootstraps. And I intentionally say it that way. They were her bootstraps. And she was like, get on my back, let's go. My father was not around. He was in, in and out of prison since 1992, my whole life. He's effectively a stranger. And in some ways, it's a fear that I parent with because I was like, I don't, I don't need my kids to have that relationship with me. So, and I was, I was also a kid who didn't complain about the way things were. I, I just accepted like, this is life. I just don't remember being very sad about it. I just remember thinking like, I have everything I need. There were, mo there were moments in my childhood where like, I didn't know I was poor. And it, what, it, what it did for me is it gave me tremendous respect for my mother and a lack of respect for my father because he, he made choices that forced him into a life of not taking care of his family. And so I sit with those chips on my shoulder, right, wrong, or otherwise, they're, they're there. And I carried that in the school decisions and any, anything else. When my wife told me that, that we were having a child, 
I just remember not saying anything. She, she was mad at me for a while, but I didn't say anything. I just grabbed my laptop and I started looking for a different kind of job because I felt like, yeah, like there was, there was a risk that I had to take. There was a risk that I now could take because with every child, my career, like the, what I feel about it has minimized. Like I've not been bothered by not hitting these goals, these lofty goals that I had for myself. To, to the point where now like I've been practicing leading with, I'm a dad and I do these other things in education. Because to me, like the, the courage to say that in public, when, when you know people are like, what do you do? Because they're asking you to assess how much money you make and how valuable you are to society. <laughs> like the freedom to take risk and knowing that you get to be the hero of the story. Like if you show up, for your kids, you get to be the freaking hero of the story. When you get your joy from that, like, that's a beautiful place to be for me. And so like for aspiring fathers, or if like if you're about to have a kid, like get ready for the flip, man. Like that switch is gonna get flipped. And it's, it, I, I love, it, it gives you a boldness to go out and do things. And uh, I, I talk to people a lot in like career seminars and they ask me, they ask me that like, what is the key to my success in education? And I say that I'm unafraid to be fired. And it's not because I hold something that's valuable that like where like people won't fire me. I think that is true too. I try to like set things up that way, but it's really because I just know, like you said, like if we have to sell our house and live in a trailer, my, my, my wife always tells my kids, like if you decide you want nothing to do with us and you're like, I'm leaving, you'll see us behind you with packed bags. Like, where are we going? Like, we're gonna follow you to the end there. Like, just, as long as my, I got my family together and they're good, I'm good. And, yeah. We call this channel Dad Saves America for a very particular reason. And that is that I believe that the big issues of the country are probably best solved in the area of your own life where you actually make a difference. Yeah. And so for me, and for our team here, if you're a dad or if you're thinking about being a dad, there really isn't a bigger playing ground right. for you to make a difference. Mm -hmm. How do you think about what America is and how and, and your role as a dad in the American story? This is gonna sound weird, but it is my chance to feel American. Just the reality of being a black man in the United States, you don't always feel American. And part of it is because our community pulls us in such a way, we've become, we've become pretty insular. We, we look for each other in public. And for me, when I'm able to put everything aside and focus on my house, it gives me a shot at feeling the most American I ever can. Because all these things that we've talked about, like when it comes with race and all of these things, People have asked me before, like, do you want your kids to, to be reading theory like you did? And I say, no. That tortured me. Like, listening to the Pledge of Allegiance and asking myself, is that for me? Like, it was not a comfortable feeling. And it's not that I want them to be ignorant of history or anything like that, but I want them to, I want them to be bold and brave enough to feel like I can do whatever, whatever I work for because I'm blessed to live in a country that makes that possible. It's not possible everywhere. I want them to be proud of who they are 
I want them to live the American dream, whatever that may be, whatever, however they define it. And so my role in my house is, is to cover and to, to shield and teach and help grow. And so, yeah, I think, I think dad is the most essential role in the development of this country. I, I believe in that deeply. Amen, man. I, it's been so fun having you uh, participate in this conversation. I, you know, I know we're gonna have a lot more. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thank you, this was awesome. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dad Saves America podcast. If you did, make sure to subscribe so you won't miss the next episode. It also really helps us out when you leave us a good rating wherever you listen to podcasts. For more content like this, including video versions of these conversations, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash dadsavesamerica.